0: Greetings, we offer these podcasts freely and your support really matters. To make a donation, please visit Tarabrock.com. Welcome and namaste. The last session uh, our class the focus was on the role of hope on the spiritual path. And I was contrasting spiritual hope to egoic hope, a kind of more narrow, grasping kind of hope. And the mark of egoic hope is that we're wanting certain outcomes to come to pass in the future. Um, So I hope I'll get a a raise or win the Olympic gold or whatever it is. So there's a kind of narrowed hope. And with it, along with the grasping, there's a kind of a fear that uh, it won't work out. And there's a real narrowed attention. It's like we miss the universe around us because we've got this idea we want just something in particular. A favorite example has always been this... A story of an older woman who's kind of sitting on a, a, a bench, a park bench in, in Miami, and a very disheveled man in tattered clothing comes and sits down next to her. And um, so she asks, so how are you? And he said, well, actually, I'm, I'm just out of prison, 25 years. And she says, oh, what were you in for? He said, murdering my wife. And she said, oh, so you're single. <laughs> So what happens is that we don't it's, we have an agenda cuz we're hoping for a certain thing and we're just not available to how life really is the hoping for a certain thing to happen a certain way actually makes it so we're not receptive and available and attuned to the whole mystery that's unfolding around us. And this happens even in spiritual realms when we have an idea of we're meditating and we have an idea of how we want our practice to be. And it's, and when, when it's not the way we have the, the idea, if it's not crystal rainbows and lights and so on, if there's anxiety that arises, our obsessive thoughts. We think, oh, this isn't supposed to be here. And rather than opening to what is and letting whatever's here be a portal, we're kind of searching for it to be different or grasping. And of course it happens uh, for many people when we have ideas of the future and how things are supposed to evolve, what kind of heaven realms we want to be able to uh, transcend into either during our life or in the afterlife, and there is a story about two friends, Norman and Irv, who had a deep interest in the esoteric, and they had this sense or this belief that after they died there was some way to keep in contact with uh, those on, on still in form. and. So they made a deal that whoever was the first to die would get in touch and, and kind of describe how it was to live in the afterlife, in more transcendent realms. So Irv dies first and Norman is, doesn't hear from him for a year and just decides, okay, there's no afterlife. But one day he gets a call and it's Irv. And he goes, oh, so there is an afterlife, wow, because he's hearing this message, this voice in his mind. So he says, what's it like? And um, Norman asks, and this is Irv's response, he goes, well, I sleep very late, I have a big breakfast, then I have lots of sex, lots of sex, then I go back to sleep, but I get up for lunch, have a big lunch, more sex, take a nap, huge dinner, more sex, and it goes on and on. Wow, says Norman, so that's what heaven's really like? Oh no, says Irv, I'm not in heaven. I'm a moose in Wyoming. (laughs) So we have ideas and they get in the way of our availability to really discover the reality of the moment. Any idea does. So spiritual hope, in contrast to these ideas about how it could or should be, it arises from a trust of consciousness, that love is here, consciousness is here, it's living through us, and it's timeless. It's not really a hope for something in the future, it's that hope and sense of openness to the, the unfolding of consciousness right here and now. It's described as an attitude of the soul, and I really like that expression, this this uh, spiritual hope. Um, it's this wisdom that recognizes our potential to realize a fully-awakened heart-mind. And that, and that sense of our potential makes us available moment-to-moment to what's right here. Here's uh, Hamid Ali, the way he describes it. He says, hope, and he's talking about what he sometimes describes as holy hope, is a state of trust that everything will be okay. It's a feeling of optimism, an attitude of openness and true receptivity to what the unfolding of being presents to us. What makes it that everything will be okay? It's that the love and awareness that we belong to is living through us this very moment. That's what gives us the trust. So, spiritual hope doesn't have to do with the future when I look ahead, when I think of the future, a lot of the time I just get anxious, you know, I just think of I have too much to do, you know, and it just gets me tight, that's, that's what comes up habitually when I think of the future. And that's not to say there aren't uh, skillful ways you can think of the future uh, that serve hope, but they have to point you back to the value of being present. Does that make sense? If you have an idea of the future and it's like, and the message is, oh, everything you want is by being present, that's a useful one. So as we're going to explore, fueling and nurturing spiritual hope comes out of connecting right here, more fully, with our life, our bodies, our hearts, our awareness. It's a reconnecting. Now, in Buddhism, it's it's always to me it's just very striking that really the heart of Buddhism is this attitude of hope. That the first noble truth says, okay, there's suffering, there's discontent, and the second noble truth says that it arises because we're always grasping after things or pushing things away, and the third noble truth says, but freedom's possible. For any of us, freedom is possible. This is the message. And the example of the Buddha is just the only value of it is it's an example of a human being caught in grasping, caught in pushing things away that was able to come home to a larger sense of being to that awareness and love that's here. Freedom is possible. Fourth noble truth is the path to that freedom. How to manifest that potential. So the path is grounded in hope. And when we're shy on hope, there are ways to nourish it. And that's what we're going to look into tonight. We're going to, two things. One is what blocks us. You know, what really blocks us from having that attitude of possibility? And the second is when we're blocked, really how do we move into that sense of, oh, okay, it's here. I can draw on this. Hope gets blocked, it gets disabled, we contract away from a natural sense of openness or optimism when we have some experience of severed belonging. And I like that that term, it's very much in the field of psychology, but I think it's useful. It's really a felt sense of severed belonging, it's not actual severed belonging. We can't be severed. We are awareness. There's no severing, but there's a felt sense from a small self perspective that we've been cut off in some way. It happens typically for many in early childhood because our parents also had severed belonging and are unable to uh, create that kind of resonance field where we're seen and gotten for who we are and we're, we're, we're embraced for who we are. So when there's not a really safe, loving, filled with understanding kind of attunement in our home life uh, that is a sense of being cut off. It's really interesting that researchers are discovering more and more how uh, when there's enough nurturance, when there's really good mirroring you know, I see you, I get you, that is actually what activates the neural connections in the frontal cortex. So our capacity, especially the relational network in the frontal cortex that has to do with empathy and compassion, that gets activated when, as young children, we are in a resonance field. And when we are not, in other words, if we don't get seen and we don't get that loving, uh, we don't get the full activation of our frontal cortex, we are not able to engage in relationships so fully because there's not trust, there's some sense of danger. When that happens, instead of being guided by a wholeness or an integrated brain and a, uh, you know, an awake heart, we're guided by our limbic system that looks for what's threatening and dangerous and tends not to trust others. And it's really seen, um, there's some animal studies that show it in a very... Kind of dramatic way. Uh, some studies uh, with chimps when the mother is erratic in mothering, you know, sometimes there, sometimes not, and erratic is what sets off a sense of insecurity and trauma. Uh, when the mother's erratic, uh, the chimp babies end up binge eating, being antisocial, withdrawn, and fearful. Now, does that sound familiar? You know. <laughs> I mean, how many of us? So it really creates the groundwork for depression because when we are cut off from a sense of that connection with others, when we are living in anxiety, the tendency is to want to push under our life energy because it is so unpleasant. So that is one level that it happens is in childhood when there is not good enough parenting. But it also happens through our life, when we have experiences of um, being violated or rejected or some threat to our health where we really sense that we could die when there's, a, when there's dramatic accidents, um, anytime we feel unsafe in a, some sort of ongoing way, that can end up creating that sense of severed belonging, mistrust, lack of hope. We can see it culture-wide when we really look at historically marginalized groups. So all these studies of Native American groups in Canada, the United States, and how um, generational trauma has created this experience of depression, addiction, anxiety, the same thing we see when when we humans are animals. Make things unsafe and we lose access to hope and we go into anxiety, depression, and addictive behavior. see it very much, it's so much uh, in front of us right now with the an ongoing oppression and a violence towards African-Americans. I was uh, at teaching on the West Coast, I was one gave a talk at Salesforce, and one of the women I was talking to there was describing how the fear she experiences when her partner goes out to the supermarket when it's late at night time because it's increasing police violence and, you know, black men getting stopped and never know when there's going to be some, some sense of, you know, right on the streets, either killed by police or attacked by a gang member. So she lives in fear and ta Coates describes this the fear for the bodily self. This ongoing sense of fear of severed belonging cuts us off from hope. We can't sense the possibility of what we might experience in our lives. So its, it's, most, it's biggest expression is when there is full trauma. Full trauma means we are fully severed, there is full severed belonging, we are completely gripped by the limbic system. But for most of us, if we haven't had full trauma, there are ways we have felt severed belonging, each of us. And to the extent we have, to whatever degree, that means that we are going to have some lack of access to really trusting our own body, trusting our heart, trusting that others care, trusting the earth, the the web of life. I think in particular about depression because it's such a, um, one of the most... uh, common and really excruciating versions of severed belonging that when the life energy just depresses what's there and the feeling of no hope it's a a real prison, a biological and psychological prison for anyone that has experienced depression knows it when we don't have hope it feels like torment Hence, we begin to look at, for any of us on the spectrum, how do we reconnect when there is severed belonging at any level? How do we reconnect? And the first thing is, again, to say, it's possible to reconnect. That the Buddha said that I wouldn't be teaching you this dharma, this path, if it wasn't possible to be free, if it wasn't possible to reconnect if it wasn't possible to be happy. So freedom's possible, it's an intrinsic capacity within us, and there's a pathway, and we're going to look at now how to reconnect to the aliveness and the moment and to our lives. What I'd like to do, and this will be for the rest of uh, this talk, is draw on some examples uh, of different people who've really kind of hit bottom. And sometimes that's more extreme, but I think in a way often, in order to find our way to hope, we have to hit bottom that all of our kind of false refuges, all our compensatory techniques, they don't really work. They don't bring us a deep sense of trust that allows us to move through the ups and downs of life. We are on a roller coaster usually. So the first uh, person like to bring in is William James, and many of you know of him as American philosopher, psychologist, educator, and also as uh, one of the uh, well-known people that really introduced us to altered states, that the reality is not just this narrow version that we have of it. So his story, and it's an interesting story, he came from a really accomplished family and his brother uh, Henry was a super successful writer. And William in his thirties, he was unaccomplished, he wanted to be a painter, and then he gave that up and went to medical school, but then he quit that to do an expedition up the Amazon. Uh, but that didn 't work out either, and then, in a moment of reckoning, and he wrote this in his diary, he questioned he, that he had the capacity to be in any way productive in his life and that he should be alive at all. guess okay, so that counts as hitting bottom right that, that 's pretty good, so he just you know he was uh, he had any i guess any possibility was there then, if he really didn't have a reason to be alive, but he said, before I do anything rash, I'm going to do a one-year experiment. And this is what I... I think this is fascinating. So he did a one-year experiment. He decided that no matter what thoughts arose, no matter how hopeless, no how depressed, he would keep turning his attention to the assumption that change was possible. That was it. He was going to, every time, he had certain types of thoughts like hopeless, hopeless, I am, you know, unproductive, what, never going to work. He would just turn to the assumption of change is possible. Not I am a great person and I am you know, getting better and better every day, you know, the thing you put on your refrigerator, but change is possible, okay? <laughs> All right, so he tracked in his diary and he practiced every day as if things could get better, as if he could transform. And he became increasingly receptive to opportunities in that mind state. And his energy got engaged and he got more and more aligned with deeper interests. He married, he started teaching at Harvard, created a study group, the Metaphysical Club. He wrote a letter after this experiment. He said, I possess for the first time an intelligible and reasonable conception of freedom free to manifest our potential. So this feels like a really super relevant story for us because the training that we do in, uh, when we are practicing mindfulness and compassion really it begins with being able to step out of the trance of thoughts that keep our biology and our mood and our attitude really small in that prison. We begin to notice, oh, if I'm thinking this, that this is my sense of who I am, I'm going to stay stuck in this pattern. So we step out of certain thoughts. The Buddha said, whatever a person frequently thinks and reflects on, that will become the inclination of their mind. So you see, a hopelessness has to be fueled by thoughts. That mood has to be fueled so we begin to ask ourselves, what kind of thoughts do we have regularly? Are they thoughts that are going to keep us sensing limitation? Or are they thoughts that are going to open us to what's possible and bring us right back into this moment? A friend told me a story of a couple Uh, who really loved to travel, were living it very fully, he got a diagnosis of Parkinson's. And this friend described how they continued very lively and engaged, very open, with a real capacity for joy. And the way they did it, they had this agreed-on attitude, which is that they are going to have a conscious intention to allow each day to be as good as it could be not saying it had to be a certain way some days could be really hard oh, exhausted all day but they were open to even with that having the most presence or care or tenderness or curiosity kindness it's that openness and it's an attitude so let's just take a, a little moment to practice on this level this is working with the thoughts a bit So one expression of severed belonging is limiting thoughts. And one way to re-establish belonging is to wake up out of them, come back to the living experience, be open to what's possible right here. So I invite you to bring to mind an area in your life where you might feel some doubt where you might have some limiting thoughts, not be so hopeful. It might be around work, or it might be in a certain relationship that feels very stuck, hurtful, dead-ended, reactive. It might be that you have some limiting ideas and doubts about your health, about your spiritual unfolding, or somewhere you feel emotionally stuck. sense the area that you're where you get caught in doubt you might deepen your listening and just sense well, what is it you're most believing or telling yourself that you don't have the capacity to make things different or that you don't have the capacity to live with what's going on, what's unfolding, that it's too much, that something bad's around the corner. Just take a moment to sense whatever it is you're believing, how that belief imprisons. You might sense if you are running that belief through your mind when you are believing it when you are believing in your limitation your lack of capacity how it severs you from being available it severs you from that, that openness, that receptivity you are actually not so available to life. Just bring a very kind presence to both the activity of the belief and to the, the squeeze or the prison that it creates. So that you are breathing and as if you are really from your deepest, wisest self just bearing witness with real kindness. sense that you can perceive this from your highest and wisest self, how the smaller part of you is caught, and also see beyond how the wisest part of you can sense possibility. And you might imagine what your life would be like if you didn't believe the limiting thoughts. Just get a glimpse. What does it feel like in your body if you just for a moment sense what would it be like if I didn't believe? Just let your body sense that, that sense of possibility, that mystery that aliveness, that all of a sudden becomes available and for now, just to honor that something that you can tap into that like William James, you can notice when the limiting thoughts come and on purpose invite in your deepest wisdom turn to the light to the sense of possibility. opening your eyes. So that's the first first avenue back to belonging is that we wake up out of the limiting thoughts. The second uh, example of rediscovering our belonging um, is Henry Thoreau. We are back in history, males back a century or so. And so in his time, a neighbor put it, he was an irresponsible idler, a trial to his family and no credit to his town. He was seen as a loser, and as a writer he was disregarded. In fact, Walden languished on bookshelves for years. Okay. So, age 26... Thoreau goes to New York City and he wants to establish himself in the literary scene there. And he tries to develop his career in a conventional way and adopt the kind of style and fashion of the day. He tries to be like those that were popular. Totally crashes. Rejected. So he goes home and he's doing a lot of soul-searching and he basically discovers what happened. That he had lost touch with his own being and trying to be the way the world thought he should be or the way he thought the world thought he should be. Anyway, you know, meeting expectations uh, and so on. So he really asked himself, you know, what is it that I love? And he returned to his beloved woods with wisdom from failure, which was, you have to be who you are. You have to stay true to what you love. So he found the still point, the center of the natural world, and it was, for him, 1.5 miles from home. And I thought it was interesting that his mother would bring him cookies and sandwiches. So he was, he was still this loafer, you know, but he was a loafer that had found his way back home again. And what he found was attentiveness to nature, this natural world, was a way to come home to the nature of his inner world. This was his pathway to belonging. So his message, this is a quote, one should always be always on the train of one's own deepest nature for it is the fearless living out of your own essential nature that connects you to the divine." So there is this homecoming that comes in the face of having to extricate ourselves from this idea of we are supposed to be a certain way, because it is a deep, deep imprint on every one of us that we should act a certain way, we should be successful in a certain way, we should look a certain way. So for us to imagine, who would I be in this moment if I was not obeying any of that? What really matters to me? Rumi puts it this way, Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kiss the ground. So there is an inquiry here for each of us. Are we really kissing the ground in a way that aligns with our particular body-mind-spirit? Personal story, um, my father was a lawyer and also a social activist and when I went to college my uh, plan was I was going to go to college and then go to law school and do law in the service of social change. And so I went in thinking I was going to go to law school and I came out and joined an ashram, a spiritual community. So something happened in there, some shift. And um, my understanding is that, um, you know, I I got very involved, you know, with tenants' rights organizing, community organizing, and uh, left-wing activity that was really trying to address inequity in in the culture. And while the causes were fabulous, same causes I believe in today, the energy was very militant. It was very shaking a fist at the heavens and making others wrong and bad. It was very... it felt very polarizing and divisive. So um, I began to do yoga and meditation and it was like I came alive. I realized, oh, we can come home to a sense of open-heartedness and presence with others that it's that, that's the consciousness I want to live from and act from and I could tell I needed to really immerse myself so I switched gears, instead of law school I joined an ashram and just to say that I had a lot to face and work out in doing that because, you know, there was just some guilt that I wasn't being a social change agent in the way that my family most admired you know, both of my parents were real active and um, not only that Uh, I wasn't on an apparent career track (laughs) at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just want to name that my example comes with a lot of privilege. You know, I was in my early 20s. I didn't have anyone to support. Um, I, you know, was joining pretty much of a commune. I didn't have to earn money and so on. And my parents were, were very supportive, actually. They were actually fabulous. And still, even if we can't change our job so it fully matches energetically what we feel is the way of kissing the ground. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And if we're not kissing the ground, if we're not doing what we love, then we're not nourishing hope. It's as Thoreau put it, that we really have to stay aligned with our spirit in this. So we'll take another moment to reflect, if you will. So again, we severed belonging when through our parents, our culture, we, we leave ourselves. We leave the life that really expresses what we love. And how do we reconnect? And you might ask yourself, when you're feeling most alive and present and in flow and awake, what's going on? What are you doing? What is it you love? You might imagine an open space of time with zero demands and expectations. What do you want to do with that? Just as a starting point, we know the expectations are there, but first find what do you love? Do you love being with certain people? Do you love gardening or hiking? Do you love serving, feeling that you are helping? Do you love creativity, painting or dancing or music? Do you love non-doing, just being still? to choose just one thing you love. You may love many, many, but one thing that you know you really love. Just imagine it, sense yourself engaged in what you love. sense what you most love about it what's the actual felt experience what's going on inside you what's the quality of presence that arises that makes this so precious Just sense that background of presence, that being quality that you have access to Sense who you are when you're doing what you love, when you're kissing the ground. And know that this is another pathway to belonging to your heart, to aliveness. This is a pathway to living with the sense of possibility in every moment to take the time to kiss the ground. Rumi says, let yourself be silently drawn by the stronger pull of what you love. So we've talked a bit about the severed belonging that comes when we get in limiting thoughts and waking up out of them and exploring now the sense of kissing the ground, coming back to what we love. Oscar Wilde puts it this way, he says, Be who you are, everyone else is taken. (laughs) So when we belong to ourselves in our life, we rediscover that sense of possibility and hope. Next one I want to dis- discuss is, comes from the question of, yeah, but I don't know what I love. You know, sometimes when we're really depressed, we don't, we don't know what we love, we don't find joy in things. And so the next um, teaching on, on rediscovering belonging is the centerpiece of all dharma, which is then belong to what's right here in this moment including the misery and the pain and the sorrow and the sadness belong to this moment's experience the benefit is if you start right where you are with this moment it will become a portal to the presence that we long for but we start by being with what is Woman last week again, I was, was last week I was out in the Bay Area um, and did a, 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 a day long on relationships on loving relationships and she was describing the series of the habits that led to failed relationships for her, and what happens is she anticipates that she 's going to be rejected in some way that there 's going to be an unevenness that she 'll want it more and the, partner won't, and, and then she starts when she starts detecting a pulling away she grasps on and feels possessive or jealous or whatever, and then things crash, the person pulls away even more, and then she gets depressed, kind of hopeless, it's not going to work, and, and, she, and, that, and then kind of stays in that for a while until something possible comes along and then she replays the pattern And um, so this had been what had been going on for a long time. And then she started practicing with mindfulness and with compassion. And her practice became, as we described with William James, when she'd see the thoughts of, this isn't going to work, I'm going to be rejected, she would put it like a picture frame around them and say, okay, these are the thoughts of my, you know feelings of, I am going to fail, I am going to be rejected. Then she would come into her body and underneath those thoughts were fear. And underneath that fear there was a sense of of shame, of, I am not wanted, I am unlovable, and real loneliness. And her practice would just simply be with that with a really deep compassion. She just told herself, I am here with you, dear, I am here with you, dear, I am not leaving. And when she'd leave and the thoughts again of, oh, this is going to fail, I'm going to be rejected, she'd come back and feel the feelings again. I'm here with you, dear. I'm putting my hand on my heart because that's a way to reconnect and establish belonging. It was a thing her parents did not do when she was upset. They didn't know how to say, I'm here with you, dear. Okay, so she did it for herself. And she said there was a real wake-up one day when she sensed, that the one who was offering care was tremendously tender, tremendously present, tremendously kind. She goes, oh, that's me. This is my capacity. This is my potential. And she started paying attention to that, bringing her attention to that, this is me, meaning this is my more evolved potential being. Well. This started shifting the pattern, and as she described it, you know, that with the next relationship she was able to hold it a little more lightly because she was trusting more this goodness. And she was able to be more open about her insecurity because she didn't have to cover because it, it didn't seem so toxic. She started developing a relationship and her way was, I am with you, dear staying right with what's here. And I can say, just to extend on this um, personally, that countless times every day I'll feel the arising of anxiety and it comes from a feeling of, you know, an old pattern of a separate self that's got too much to do, that's going to fail in some way. And that'll come up, you know, that severed belonging, at some version of it. And each time fear becomes a portal to the fearless heart, if I can just simply recognize it and stay a little in my body with kindness. So this isn't like only a practice for major dramatic incidents. This is like a daily way we cultivate trust, we deepen that sense of belonging by every time some expression of the separate self, the severed self comes up, the response is, oh, let's be right here, be with it, Kind it becomes a portal, and we begin to sense the potential of who we are, this presence that is incredibly tender and awake, we begin to trust that. So this is the next way of belonging, is to come home to ourselves in the moment. And I want to bring up one more before we close, which is absolutely essential, which is to realize our belonging with each other. We cannot heal severed belonging unless we can begin to come out of our bubble, begin to let ourselves feel our vulnerability in the presence of another and open to that other and sense our love and our appreciation with that other. Otherwise, on some level, we're still going to be feeling ourselves as separate and operating out of that separateness. It's the reason that 12-step groups work. Why do they work? There's so much research now. We cannot change habits if we don't trust the potential to change. So in 12-step groups, others are around and they're beginning to change habits and that inspires us. In 12-step groups, we begin to sense, oh, it's not like I'm a bad, addicted self. It's It's the addiction we all have, the tendency we all have. Less shame. Another story for you, uh, again from last week, one woman described how she, she's in recovery for cancer and uh, she's in a group, a group of people, a group of women that are, have all, are all in recovery in some way, and um, says it's deeply honest, in other words, they name all the fears they have of dying, all the shame they have for the way they look and feel, the insecurity that others will turn them into, the C word, the disease all the all the pain about being helpless and needy, they very, very honest, so it is very freeing because it is not my shame, it is the shame, it is just this human experience. That helps to heal severed belonging. In addition, and this is what I wanted to share with you, um, this woman I was talking described how one woman was feeling a huge amount of angst because of not being there for her children, that she was just very... Feeling very self-absorbed, as she put it, although she was just working with what was there, but um, she felt this angst of letting down her family. and so they went around and they, they opened to the vulnerability she was experiencing, but so they also went around the circle, and each of them uh, named what they saw in her, which was her humor and her deep caring and her capacity to have others, how much she helped others feel accepted and cared about, and she let it in some and she really lit up and then this became part of their regular ritual that as part of healing severed belonging they not only would share their vulnerability but they would go around in the circle and at different times take turns, look at each other and share what they saw as the goodness that that light and beauty and heart that's shining through Arne Garberg, Norwegian writer, says, "'To love someone is to learn the song in their heart and sing it to them when they have forgotten.'" So this is the other pathway, it's relational belonging and it's absolutely essential to mirror the light. For um, this group, one of the other, before we left the, the day long, Uh, this woman described how naturally some people relapsed and for one uh, week before her death she said more than anything um, in facing her death that this group allowed her to trust the timeless light that lived through her and it was what was allowing her to move towards her passing with a wide open heart with a fearless heart this is hope. Hope is not that we won't die. It's the hope that comes from trusting a timeless quality of love and presence that lives through us and shines through us and that will carry us as a refuge through all the ups and downs. Tibetan teacher and writer Sogyo Rinpoche puts it this way, he says, if everything changes, then what is really true Is there something behind the appearances, something boundless and infinitely spacious in which the dance of change and impermanence takes place? Is there something in fact we can depend on that does survive what we call death? So when we have spiritual hope, it really brings alive that capacity to trust in what is timeless and open to our moment-to-moment experience with a real sense of receptivity. So as we've explored, we we cultivate it, we step out of the limiting beliefs, we kiss the ground, we do what we love, we reconnect by belonging to the immediate experience of the moment and discovering in in a truly awake intimate way, our belonging with each other. And these are kind of the pathways that remind us of something that's timeless, that can really carry us. A closing story for you and then we'll just take a few moments to sit quietly. I've always loved this. This is a story about Kafka when he was an older man and he spent a lot of time sitting in a park. And one day a little girl walked by him and she had tears running down her face and He stopped her and said, tell me what's wrong? And she said, well, I'm missing my doll, my favorite doll. And he decided to help her look around. They looked around, but couldn't find it. A few days later, the girl returns and Kafka says, there's no doll, but there's a note, and he reads it. What the note said was, I've gone off to travel some around the world, please don't worry about me, I'm fine. So the girl's somewhat relieved. She returns to the park every week or so, and each time she does, Kafka's there with a note from the doll. And the, the girl, you know, it's just each time that he reads to the girl um, the note and tells of the doll's adventures traveling around the world. So Kafka gets sick and he goes to the park one last time. This time he's brought a doll and he hands it to the girl and says, the travels had really changed her. <laughs> Some years later, when the girl was a young woman, she finds and reads a note that's been rolled up and placed in the doll's hand. She she discovers it. Here's what it says. You will lose everyone you love, but the love will always return in new forms. When we open to change, we realize the changeless that shines through us all. And trusting that changeless love, that awareness, and living from it is really the source of spiritual hope. So let's just take a few moments together to uh, sit quietly. And in the spirit of this evening's reflection, you might begin and just take a moment to sense someone who you really love and what brings up that sense of loving just the goodness that you sense in that person Sensing the way that person looks at you when they are loving you, caring about you Just feeling the sense of connection, you might even mentally whisper the person's name and say thank you Just let the feeling of belonging energy that's connected and part of each other. Just open to that and let go of the idea of the person and just feel that warmth and aliveness of belonging. Let yourself belong to this moment, to what's actually you're experiencing right here in your heart, in your body, your mind. And as you listen to the rain, as you listen to the sound, sensing the the awareness that's here, that tender open space of awareness that's listening and feeling the moment. sensing in the background that awake openness of awareness that tenderness that's really home timeless loving presence and this is From Rilke, center of all centers, core of cores, almond self-enclosed and growing sweet, all this universe to the furthest stars, all beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space and there the rich thick fluids rise and flow illuminated in your infinite peace, a billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head, but in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. Namaste and blessings. For more talks and meditations and to learn about my schedule or join my email list, please visit tarabrach.com. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.